Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Right, well, well, good evening, everybody. I think we'll make a start. Um, I'm Nick Pierce. I'm the director of the Institute for Policy Research here at the university. I'm delighted to see so many of you here this evening, so many students as well as colleagues from the university and from the wider community. Uh, thank you all very much for coming. Um, this evening's lecture is about the prisons crisis, um, what's gone wrong and, what, and how to fix it. Many of us, I think, um, will know uh, how many problems have built up in our prison system. Massive overcrowding, self-harm, assaults, um, re-offending rates stubbornly high, people being discharged into the community with little support. There's an enormous amount that's wrong in our prison system. Uh, there are very few people better equipped to talk to us about that issue and, and what to do about it than Nick Hardwick. Um, Nick and I, we were just speaking on the way in, we met for the first time in about 2001 when I was working for the Home Secretary in the Home Office and Nick at the time was uh, Chief Executive of the Refugee Council and we were arguing about support for asylum seekers and refugee employment policy and things of that kind. Um, it wasn't but, all your fault, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, Nick uh, had, has had a really distinguished career in the public uh, sector. He, Chair the Refugee, Chief Executive of the Refugee Council, but then went on to be um, uh, uh, Chief Executive of the, um, uh, uh, well, the Executive Chair, I should say, of the Independent Police Complaints Commission, and then Her Majesty's Chief Inspector of Prisons for England and Wales, before then chairing the Parole Board. So he's had a huge experience in this area. Now at Royal Holloway, where he's a Professor of Criminal Justice, where, so he can now bring to bear both theory and practice in, in what he's going to talk to you about tonight. Um, uh, I'll ask Nick to begin his lecture in a minute. When he's done that, we'll have an opportunity for discussion and debate. I'll come up, back up and I'll chair that discussion. But Nick, you're very welcome this evening. Thank you for joining us. Um, well, well, thank you very much, uh, Nick, for that uh, introduction. Uh, it's a real pleasure to uh, be here in uh, Bath. You know, some uh, friends in the uh, audience uh, and, and others that are uh, uh, new. Uh, I realise, actually, that the title sounds a bit arrogant, actually, what's gone wrong and how to fix it, as though I know uh, the answer to either of those uh, questions, but uh, bear, bear with me. Um, so, uh, a, a, a saying, I think, can be a cliché, but uh, true for all that. And some of the biggest uh, prison clichés are variants of Dostoevsky's quote, the degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. Or as uh, Churchill put it in 1910 when he was Home Secretary, we must not forget that when every material improvement has been effected in prisons, when the temperature has been rightly adjusted, when proper food to maintain health and strength has been given, when the doctors, chaplains and prison visitors have come and gone, the convict stands deprived of everything that a free man calls life. We must not forget that all these improvements, which are sometimes salves to our consciences, do not change that position. The mood and temper of the public in regard to the treatment of crime and criminals is one of the most unfailing tests of the civilization of any country. Or, or, or Nelson Mandela in his autobiography, A Long Walk to Freedom. It said that no one truly knows a nation until one's been inside its jails. A nation should not be judged by how it treats its highest citizens, but its lowest ones. 
So there you are, Dostoevsky, Churchill, and Mandela. Hard to imagine three more different characters, yet all came to similar conclusions. And, and the quotes uh, may be uh, familiar, but what lay behind them, uh, less so. Because what they all three had in common was the experience, the personal experience, of imprisonment. Dostoevsky in the Siberian labor camps, Churchill was a prisoner of war in 1899 in the Second Boer War. And in his notebooks, he kept at the time, he wrote this. The position of a prisoner is painful and humiliating. We must prepare ourselves to submit, to obey, to endure. Favours may be accepted from those with whom we have a long and bitter quarrel, from those who feel fiercely that we seek to do them cruel injustice. The dog who has been whipped must be thankful for the bone that is flung to him. Mandela was notoriously a prisoner uh, at Robben Island, but the famous quote about prisons in, in A Long Walk to Freedom referred to an earlier period of imprisonment uh, in Polesmore Prison, which was just an ordinary local prison in Cape Town. And elsewhere in A Long Walk to Freedom, uh, Mandela writes, prison is designed to break one's spirit and destroy one's resolve. To do this, the authorities attempt to exploit every weakness, demolish every initiative, negate all signs of individuality, all with the idea of stamping out that part which makes each of us human and each of us who we are. For, for uh, Churchill and uh, Mandela, it appears the hardest part of their imprisonment to bear was not poor conditions or physical mistreatment, uh, but, the, but the humiliation and what Churchill was to describe 10 years after his captivity as the loss of everything that a free man calls life that weighed most heavily on them. The pains of imprisonment, I suppose academics would call it. So I'll just uh, check my audience out. Who, who here has uh, been in a prison? Oh, I mean, of your own volition. I mean, who here has been in a prison? Okay. A little sprinkling at the front, I can see, but <laughs> for the rest, maybe a third, uh, perhaps. Uh, and, and beyond the colour visits area is what I'm interested in. Well, okay, some of you will have seen this then. I think I can truthfully say I've been to more prisons than most people. As when I was Chief Inspector of Prisons, and since, I've been to about 160 prisons. Uh, pretty much all the prisons in England and Wales and uh, uh, quite a few uh, uh, spread across the rest of the world, too. A and I realised, certainly when I was Chief Inspector of Prisons, that nobody else was doing quite what I did. Of course, uh, some people have much longer experience of the prison system than I did. Others may have more in-depth experience of particular institutions. Uh, some are renowned for their academic scholarship about prisons. And of course, I've never had any lived experience in a real sense. But for six years, I spent a day a week, nearly every week, in different prisons up and down the country. And I was going to more prisons, even in the inspection teams who spent a week or so in each place. So maybe I did have an overview of a particular period in prison policy that few other people could have had. And, and that experience confirm for me the insights of Dostoevsky, Churchill and Mandela. There are no holiday camps. 
Indeed, like when I was chief inspector, I always carried keys. So I could come and go as I pleased. But I was always really relieved, pleased to get out at the end of the day. And I found, you know, the locks and the bars, the stink and the noise, and the shame and the sadness and anger that sometimes seems to seep out of the walls uh, oppressive. So I'm sure that uh, even a short sentence in a well-run prison is a very severe punishment indeed. So I don't recoil for the need uh, for punishment. I think it's an important moral concept. But we should be clear that we send people to prison as punishment, not for punishment. As the uh, United Nations standard minimum rules for the treatment of prisoners, which are known as the Nelson Mandela rule, state, imprisonment is by its nature afflictive, and the prison system should not unnecessarily aggravate the suffering inherent in such a situation. And Dostoevsky, Mandar, and Chukta were right too that prisons do tell us something about the country in which they are in. And in my experience, prisons do, I'd say like disconcertingly, sometimes reflect the ugliest stereotypes, the ugliest stereotypes of the country's concern, cruel or impassive, chaotic or clinical, in ways that troublingly are as you might expect. Prisons are places of few external restraints, and so perhaps it's not surprising they reveal our darker sides. And as we are all here, uh, assembling here, and we have a bitter and rancorous national debate notching up another level outside, maybe it's interesting to consider what sort of a mirror, distorting mirror, I accept, our prisons hold up to us today. So, when I was inspecting prisons, uh, 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 what did we find and what does my successor uh, 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 find today. Uh, let me just say this. Um, few jobs, I think, present the profound operational and ethical challenges of working in or managing prisons. And I know that for many staff and governors, uh, it is precisely wanting to make a difference in the most difficult places that causes them to work there. And I've met uh, many outstanding individuals in the prison service some of them to spare their blushes are even here tonight. Uh, and, and some prisons and, some par and parts of some prisons do a great job against the odds. It would be wrong to say that every prison is dreadful, but for all that, the prison system in England and Wales is in crisis. Crisis is a much overused word, and for a long time I avoided using it about prisons. But in their latest uh, annual report on prison governance, published uh, a week or so ago, the House of Commons Justice Committee angrily repeated uh, their findings from previous reports. They said, the prison system in England and Wales is enduring a crisis of safety and decency. Violence and self-harm are at record highs, and there is little sign of improvement. The suggestion of a prison crisis and it conjures up images of riot. If I get asked by journalists whether the, the system is in crisis, they mean, uh, will there be riots? Mercifully, in recent years, the prison service has been able to fairly quickly contain the disturbances that have occurred. But at times, it's been a near-run thing. 
For example, there were a series of disturbances in prisons in the autumn and winter of 2016. In uh, prison, Hull Prison, Swaleside Prison, Lewis Prison, Bedford Prison, which culminated in a serious disturbance in HMP Birmingham. And the internal report into the Birmingham riot, which has since been released via an FOI request, concluded this, and I'll quote, Prisoners seized a set of keys and unlocked the four wings constituting the new side of the prison. They battled for several hours to break through a gate leading to the rest of the prison, which, if they had succeeded in breaching it, would have led to an even more serious incident where many staff and prisoners would have been in danger. And the report goes on. Finally, we reflected that many of the characteristics of Birmingham prison, many of the characteristics, appear similar to those of other old inner-city local prisons, some of which have also been the subject of critical media coverage recently. Illicit mobile phones, the use of drones to transport in contraband, and the wide range of problems associated with drug abuse, in particular psychoactive substances, are issues being faced across the estate. Notwithstanding the opportunities at Birmingham on before the 16th of December, day of the riot, which had they been taken could have prevented the initial stages of the incident from escalating, this reflection suggests that the encroachment on safety and decency and the risks of disorder are not peculiar to Birmingham. The problems identified at Birmingham are indeed common to many prisons. And what's more, at each disturbance at that time raised the tension elsewhere as prisoners had to be moved to different prisons both to uh, break up the groups involved and simply because so much accommodation had been uh, destroyed. And these moves, in turn, put further pressure uh, on other prisons in the system. So, on the 9th of December 2016, the week before the Birmingham riot, the prison population was about 85,800. And it had a usable operational capacity of 86,800 there or thereabouts. So the system was operating at 99% of capacity. You'd had about 1,000 places spare, but not all of these were in the type or location of prison required. So 1,000 places of headroom. After the riot, 460 prisoners had to be moved from Birmingham. And uh, uh, as the report into the riot describes, the scale of the incident meant that the evacuation took several days to effect. At one stage, it was reported that there were no, no spaces left in local prisons, and moving Birmingham prisons to the training estate was considered. The option was rejected, and it was agreed instead that sentenced prisoners from other local prisoners would be allocated to the training estate so that the displaced prisoners from Birmingham could go into the local estate. The movement of prisoners was the largest of its kind in England and Wales for more than two decades. So in order to make space for the prisoners from Birmingham who were displaced, you had to move prisoners out of other prisons to somewhere different, and then in order to make space for them, you had to move another lot. So you had this kind of domino effect. And each time someone gets moved, the course they're on is disrupted, their visit arrangements go to pot, etc., etc. But in this case, the system got lucky. The prison population always drops in the run-up to Christmas. So on the 30th, 30th of December, two weeks after the riot, the operational capacity 
of the system had fallen by about 500 places. Those people had to be moved out from Birmingham. But the population had fallen by almost 1,000 places. And so the pressure on the system was eased. Had the riots taken place at a different time of year, the system would have been in much uh, deeper trouble. I think uh, it was, uh, we were in a hair's breadth of something much more serious. But I don't think that the evidence of the prisons crisis will ultimately be found in riots. It will be found in the collapse of safety and decency across the system. For reasons I'll explain in a moment, standards of safety and decency began to tumble around 2012-13. And the evidence for this is remarkably consistent. Uh, if you look here, these are, this is a kind of graph showing uh, prison inspection years. For about five years uh, before 2012-13, uh, inspection findings were improving year on year. But in 2012, things took a dramatic turn for the worst. Uh, these are the inspection results for the time I was chief inspector. So you can see here, right? essentially the, the trend is upwards. Things are gradually getting better, not in a consistent straight line, but improving. Right? And then here, about 2011, 12, 13, they plummet. Uh, and the safety data published by the prison service tells a very similar story. This uh, compares the latest data with that of 10 years ago. Um, most recent uh, figures were published last Thursday. Uh, uh, and I know that some people in the audience have seen me uh, use a uh, slide that's similar to this before. And so they'll think I'm repeating myself. I'm not repeating myself, because every time I do this and go to revise it, the figures have got worse. It's different every time. Uh, so I'll pick out some of the more notable statistics. Over the last 10 years, deaths of all types in prisons have risen by 86%. Suicides have risen by 48%. Self-harm incidents have risen by 138%. Uh, assaults have risen by 121%, serious assaults by 190%, assaults on staff by more than 25%. Or to put it another way, every week last year, on average, six prisoners died, there were one or two suicides every week, over 100 self-harm incidents, 650 assaults, 75 serious assaults every week, and almost 200 assaults on staff every week. These are the uh, prison system's own charts showing uh, how that increased. Right? So this is uh, self-harm uh, rates. So you can see, up to about 2012 to back here, there's either it's either flat or maybe marginally improving. And then here, starts to go up sharply. This is the most depressing slide, I think. The line at the top, this one, is self-harm rates in women's prisons. Right? So after the Corston Rube report was published in 2005, you can see you get an improvement and the self-harm rates drop. And then they make the staff cuts in women's prisons a bit later than men's prisons. They make them around here, and you see the self-harm rates going up again. Right? My point here 
is, you know, what this graph shows is we can do better, right? We did get the rates down. They don't have to be at the astronomically high levels uh, they are now. Yeah, this is the salts, same sort of pattern, same sort of date, flat, and then rising about 2012-13. And this is a particularly shocking slide, I think. This is the youth estate, uh, self-harming the youth estate, where uh, last year, this is uh, places holding boys aged 15 to 18, last year alone, self-harm ro rates rose by 88% in a year. So you think, why is there no outcry about that? Uh, I have to say, this happened at a time when the prison service took over management of the youth estate from the Youth Justice Board. board. So maybe there's something odd going on with how stuff are getting recorded, but I think this needs to be pretty urgent. Somebody ought to be looking at this urgently to see what's going on uh, there. If that's not a crisis, I don't know what is. Uh, this is a cell that's been prepared for a new prisoner. Uh, you get a sense of that. This one's a bit more typical. Uh, this is a lived-in uh, cell, two guys in there. Um, uh, and I reckon that's pretty typical. It's not particularly bad, not particularly uh, good. So you can see that. So you've got the tube, uh, so the door is here. So we're looking in from the door with this little uh, pickle. You've got two bunks there, so there were two men in there. You've got the window there, and you can see they uh, hanging out the laundry to dry there. I think that's his, his pants. And I think they cover the window with either a kind of, it's like a towel or something, I think they've got there to use it as a curtain. The toilet is behind the sink there, so the toilet would be about there. And in that prison, they've got a shower curtain to cover the toilet. Some prisons, you wouldn't have that. Uh, you've got a, uh, a little sink there, kind of table there with a little pile of papers on it. Back here, so I've had a shot. I know in that particular, uh, when we took that picture, guys had uh, piled up a little kind of pyramid of um, like toiletries and, and some like sort of cans of food, which are sort of like status symbols. I think the higher your pyramid, the higher your status. And there was one chair here. Again, you can't see that very well. Uh, so when they ate, uh, somebody had to sit on the bunk next to the toilet and somebody could sit in the chair. Here you can see they've stuck a few, uh, he stuck a few photos up on the wall. You can stick them up with toothpaste. That will make them stay. And actually in this prison as well, which is true in lots of prisons, uh, prisoners stick their pawn on the back of the cell door, in my experience, because the only way you'd see it if you were staff is if you went into the cell and had the door shut. And that happens very rarely. So if you want to have porn up in your cell and you don't want people to see it, stick it on the back of your uh, door. Uh, and, that's, and then, so that's a pretty typical cell. Uh, and uh, here. Uh, and this is how long they were spending in it. So in all prisons, this is from the, uh, my successor chief inspector's last annual report, uh, in all prisons, um, the amount of time they spent out of their cell, you have 24% of prisoners saying that they have two hours or less out of their cell a day. In a local prison, which was the one probably I showed you there, people are 37%, a third of prisoners are saying they spend only two hours or less out of their cell every day. So you're here for 22 hours a day, 
seven days a week. So you'd get to know your padmate well, wouldn't you? Uh, and what's it all for? These, are, these have been pretty uh, constant uh, levels of uh, 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 pretty constant levels of uh, reoffending, uh, and they've remained pretty static uh, over a number of years. Go up or down by one or two percent. Should say that outside the prison, uh, if you do get outside the prison, uh, quite often you'll have problems. Uh, sometimes they look, the people keep them quite nice. Uh, sometimes you'll have problems with vermin or litter or disrepair. Justice Committee reported that there is a 900 million pound backlog of repairs waiting to be done in the prison system. Uh, but, and last year, the government announced to some fanfare that they had allocated 156 million pounds to deal with the 900 million pound backlog. Math's not their strong point. Um, and the Justice Committee here uh, said against that estimated the financial cost of reoffending as 15 billion, 15 billion a year. And I would argue the financial cost is the least of it. Is a cost in uh, blooded victims, frightened communities, and wasted lives. And within those figures, uh, you've got huge disproportionality affecting people from black and minority ethnic communities. I think David Lammy put it very well in his review of the treatment and outcomes for black, Asian, and minority ethnic individuals in the criminal justice system. And he said this, despite making up 14% of the population, BAME men and women make up 25% of prisoners, uh, while over 40%, over 40% of young people in custody are from BAME backgrounds. If our prison population reflected the makeup of England and Wales, we would have 9,000 fewer people in prison, the equivalent to 12 average-sized prisons. And he said this, which was news to me and is really shocking, uh, there is greater disproportionality in the number of black people in prisons here than in the United States. So, I, I, I'm personally, I'm very clear that this, I think this is a crisis, uh, but I'm very clear that it wasn't uh, inevitable. As we've seen, in the five years or so up to 2012-13, inspection findings and safety data were at least flat or, or, or improving. And so I don't think it's credible to say that suddenly sometime around 2012-13, prison staff and managers forgot how to do their jobs. Uh, the first lesson the prison crisis teaches us is the folly of looking for simple explanations uh, and individuals to blame for what are multifactorial and strategic failures. Right? We can think of other public services now uh, in decline or public sector failures where we should also resist the demand for easy answers, in my view. So the prison population has always scored highly on measures of deprivation. Mental ill health, substance misuse, childhood trauma, low educational achievement, prior homelessness and unemployment, you name it present in the prison population to a much greater degree than the population as a whole, and even more so in women's prisons. But then on top of that, in men's prisons at least, there's been a long-term trend for the, for the proportion of the prison population who are there for high harm, violent and sexual offences to increase from 40 to 60% over the last seven years, according to an earlier Justice Committee report. And the committee also quotes uh, persuasive evidence that there's been sentence inflation. Sentences are getting longer 
for equivalent offences. They note that the Gen uh, Justice Secretary uh, uh, and Secretary of State for Justice, David Gork, recognised in a February 2019 speech that sentence inflation is a significant contributor to the size of the prison population. So the prison population is not growing, because, particularly because we are sending more people to prison. It's growing because we're sending people to prison for longer, on the whole. Right? So on the one hand, you have, at the risk of oversimplification, what might be characterised as angry young men, and on the other hand, you also have a more vulnerable population. To take one example, older prisoners are the fastest growing demographic in the prison population. So just think of the practical difficulties of managing this older population. Mobility in Victorian prisons that have steep stairs and, and, and uh, landings, bunks, uh, increased health needs. Some of these prisoners need help with kind of washing and getting dressed. You get early onset dementia for a few. Some of the older prisoners will be bullied by some of the other guys. Uh, and so you're trying to manage these two cohorts alongside each other in the same uh, prison. And we have more of these prisoners um, uh, 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 crammed together in fewer places. People will be uh, familiar, I think lots of people will be familiar with charts like this. Since 1993, the prison population has more or less doubled from 44,500 or so to 83,600 last week. Uh, 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 and just in case anyone thinks I am simply having a go at the last government, this increase up to here was the Labour governments that uh, preceded it. Uh, and the prison population has oscillated between uh, uh, around 85,000 since 2010, occasionally rising or falling, uh, by a thousand or so and the last few months actually have seen an upward trend again. My, my point here is not particularly about the size of the prison population, I don't think there's a right size, but the, there must be some mismatch between the size of the prison population and the capacity of the system. Right? And prison capacity is not just a matter of how many prisoners you can squeeze in a cell the Victorians designed for one, but whether you have the staff, the workshop space, enough telephones on the wings, etc., etc., to deal with the population you've got. So during the end of this period, a bit, uh, the very end of this period, a bit beyond it, there was a program of uh, prison uh, closures that coincided with uh, uh, swings in the population. So at times, as we saw in Birmingham, the system was uh, full to bursting point. There was also a pretty uh, clear correlation between uh, uh, the uh, 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 death rates and overcrowding rates. So if you look here, right, this chart first of all shows uh, death rates. The black columns show the death rate per thousand uh, for the preceding year. So if you look here, that's the population. And you can see not much, not much of a correlation there, pretty flat. But when you add capacity to it here, you could start to see a bit of a correlation, I think. So you can see you have this period here where the system is very overcrowded. I don't think it's a coincidence then you get a spike in the death rate. Uh, you have this period uh, here of pressure. And again, you have higher, uh, the death rate goes up. And I think those lines are getting a bit close to each other again, which should worry us. 
And here, which I think is interesting, there, that arrow is where the uh, Birmingham riot happened. So just before the Birmingham riot, you have capacity dropping and you have uh, population increasing. And then you get saved because the population drops at Christmas. So I think you need to do some more work to absolutely prove. Maybe that's just coincidence. But it uh, looks, uh, and there would have been other, and there are other factors uh, involved, but I think um, uh, uh, that should make us ponder. Uh, and uh, prison closures, which, uh, which account for, for this sort of fall in uh, capacity, were part of a large program of staff redundancies. So uh, watch what happens uh, here. Uh, so the, on this uh, graph, right, the uh, blue column is like total operational staff. The uh, red columns are staff with three or more years completed service. And the black line is the death rate. So I, I think general death rates are a reasonably good indicator. Death rates per thousand, I think, are one of our best proxies for conditions overall. So look what happens. And you just start to see that. I, I think you can absolutely see there that as staff rates fall, death rates go up. Right? I think it's a particular issue with the loss of... Uh, uh, Experienced staff, I think, it, it, I, I expected as they recruited more staff for that to have more of an impact than it did. Right? I think why it didn't is because of the loss of, of the staff turnover and the loss of experienced uh, staff. And I would say it's not unusual, certainly in some local prisons in the south where retention is most difficult to go onto wing and find no one working there with more than a year's uh, service. And the lesson about this is about kind of, uh, 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 you know, and just to make the point, sorry, just here. See here, right, you've got uh, uh, experienced staff for about 90% of the total staff group. Here, 60%. Uh, uh, and the critical issue here is resilience. The reduced staffing levels were calculated through a benchmarking exercise that might be made a series of unrealistic assumptions about how people actually work you know, that they were there all the time for a start. You know. uh, and, and prison capacity was based on over-optimistic assumptions about the prison population. Too little uh, 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 allowance was made for things not going according to plan. And then, now we're doing for time, right? and then into that volatile, frustrated, overcrowded, badly supervised mix, you had a surge in the availability of spice and other synthetic cannabinoids. In simple terms, spice is a street name for a number of substances that are manufactured to mirror the uh, effects of cannabis rather than organically grown. And the system simply didn't have the resilience to cope with this threat, and, and in fact took too long uh, to react to what was happening. So the first time uh, the inspectorate mentioned spice as being a problem, was in a report of an open prison called Stanford Hill in 2011. By 2014-15, four years later, we were describing it as a serious concern in two-thirds of prisons. And that year, a quarter of men and one in five women uh, told us that they'd used drugs in the prison, and about 8% uh, of men told us that they developed a problem with drugs in the prison. 
Of course, other drugs are available in prisons. Prisoners may try to brew illicit alcohol or hooch, and now that tobacco is banned, and no doubt they try to obtain that too. But it is spice, I think, that's been the game changer. And the physical effects on those who take it are bad enough. But it's the trade that does most harm. You have to think of it like a business. Think of it like a business. The difference between the street price and the prison price of opiates is around four times. What you can buy on the streets for £100, you can sell in prison for £400. The difference between the street price and the prison price of spice is around 10 times. What you can buy on the streets for £100, you can sell in prison for £1,000. But the unit cost is low. Each individual hit of spice is much cheaper than other drugs. And the risks to the business of detection are low uh, because the changing chemical makeup of spice make it difficult to detect and test for. So the way you make money with that set of circumstances is you need to ship in large quantities. And if some gets intercepted, that's a, that's a, that's a, you can take that hit because of the overall profits that are being made. So you can get it into prisons in the usual ways. You can go over the walls with tennis balls to drones. Uh, this is a rather splendid picture, I think, of Rambi. This is a, uh, where some people had uh, manufactured, essentially it's a catapult made out of scaffolding, uh, like a sort of medieval trebuchet, right? which they would fire over large packages of the stuff. The, the, the point about this is, is to think about the organization this required. So you've got to get it there, right? You've got to get the stuff. You've got to get it into one place. You need your security to make sure you're not, you, you, if you're the gang, you need your own security to make sure you're not intercepted. You've got to have a system inside the prison so if you do get it over, people know it's coming, they can pick it up, and they can distribute it quickly. That requires organisation, right? That's not just someone's partner bringing in a little bit and passing it over the visits hall. That's uh, some serious organisation. Uh, uh, that's going into that. Uh, or, or it can come in through the gates, uh, uh, secreted where the sun doesn't shine, think where you could put a kinder egg, uh, on visitors or returning prisoners, some of whom will get themselves recalled for just that purpose. It can be sprayed, spice can be sprayed on paper. You'll see it on everything from Bibles to tissues to children's letters, legally privileged mail, etc. And some of it is brought in by staff, uniformed or the many ancillary staff who work in prisons, or staff are threatened or bribed to look the other way. And once inside prison, the drugs have to be paid for. And if uh, people aren't paying up, you can't seek redress in the small claims court. Right? So debts will be enforced with violence or threats of violence, either inside the prison or on family and associates outside. And there's no doubt in my mind that there's a direct link between the levels of violence in prison and the supply of spice. And I'm sure that violence spills out into the community too, as debts are collected there and the proceeds of the trade fund significant criminal activity. The American uh, criminologist David Scarbeck has persuasively described the system of what he calls extra legal governance that exists in, in American uh, uh, prisons uh, which kind of regulate the trade and regulate and enforce wider rules of conduct and hierarchy. And Scarbeck uh, compared what happened in the States with what happened in English prisons. Uh, 
and said it wasn't really the, uh, the same thing here. But, but I think since he wrote, it seems to me that the loss of staff in England, of, of prisons in England and Wales, has created a vacuum in some places of legitimate authority, which in some places has been replaced by the sort of extra-legal governance that uh, Scarbeck uh, described. So I remember in uh, 2014... I uh, went to one of the local prisons here called Guy's Marsh, where, uh, uh, which was suffering from all of these problems. L a lot of staff churn at the time. Uh, not only had they lost staff, but then to replace the staff they'd lost, staff had been brought in from other prisons who didn't know the prisoners or the prison. They had a big issue with spice. It was overcrowded. All of those things. And... Um, uh, uh, and, and the policy at that time was that before people released they were kind of brought back to prisons like Guy Marsh to be released. So the gangs that had been uh, uh, split up when they were sentenced were happily reunited back in the prison. Uh, uh, and, and surprise, surprise, they fought. And when I was there, what had happened was um, there'd been three gangs operating. Two of them had had a big bust-up, and people had got moved on and moved to other prisons. And one of the gangs had decided they were going to stand off the violence, watch it all happens, and then at the end they would just move into the space and take over. And I was down on the wings, and somebody said, there's a guy who wants to talk to you. So I went over to talk to him. And he was one of the gang bosses. And you sort of sat down at the table to talk to him, called up one of his lackeys, who then kind of made notes of what we were saying, took minutes. Uh, and you think, uh, and he explained it, done precisely that. He'd let the other lot fight it out, and then moved into the space. And that's, prison confirmed, that is pretty much what had happened. Uh, and in the middle of all of this, all of this, while this is going on, uh, politicians decided this would be an excellent time to poke the system. So uh, harsher rules were introduced around incentives and earned privileges, the sort of minor discipline system, restricting what prisoners could wear and keep in their cells. Fewer prisoners were allowed out of the prison on temporary licence towards the end of their sentence. Huge changes were made in the uh, probation service. Many prison services were uh, privatised and management became fragmented. I remember one prison service, so a regional manager, telling me it was no longer the job of prison governors to provide uh, leadership. They were there to coordinate services. And leave aside for the moment whether these changes were a good or a bad thing. The, sim the system simply didn't have the capacity to implement them. There seemed to be no connection between deciding a policy or passing a law and the need for real people to do stuff to implement it. Ministers can't say they weren't uh, warned about this. The developing uh, crisis was plain to see, and I and others spelt it out. Some ministers took it better than others. I remember one minister, he rang me at home. I was having my tea, as you do, watching the telly. He rings up, and he's bellowing down the phone at me about something I put in a report. And my wife's going, who is it? And I'm going, it's the Secretary of State. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, anyhow, he got over it. Um, and... Uh, 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 and it, even sensible ministers, I think, found it hard to hear bad news or, 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 or they heard what they wanted to hear. Um, uh, 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 prison policy is even more prone to populism than other areas. I remember on the day this was published, I think about 2012, 13, this is from, uh, this is, uh, from The Sun, uh, and I went in to see Michael Spur, who at that time was head of the prison service. Uh, and I said to him rather sort of disparagingly, and I said, you don't have to spend much time in this, do you? And he said, I spent days dealing with it. I've had spads, you know, special advisors, ministers, 
all demanding to know what happened. I could tell you, like, see my vote, see what's there. 84,000 quid on haircuts, free prisons. I won't do that. That's about a fiver a haircut. I don't think you wouldn't get much of a, a haute couture trim uh, for that. Um, uh, and more seriously, I think the desire to provide easy answers uh, to, to the legitimate concerns people have got about crime and, and, and uh, disorder, uh, uh, but complex issues, the easy answer is longer and longer sentences, and we're still on that escalator today. Which brings me to a final fact I want to talk about, which is the system has been bedeviled by uh, changes in municipal policy. I was appointed as Chief of Special Presidents in 2010 by Jack Straw. Since then, as Justice Secretary, we've had Ken Clark, Chris Grayling, Michael Gove, Liz Truss, David Liddington, David Gork, and Robert Buckland. Eight in nine years, each with their own policies. We've had working prisons, rehabilitation revolutions, and transforming rehabilitation. Nothing stuck. Uh, Ken Clark <coughs> offered up savings to the Treasury on the basis that he would be able to uh, 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 reduce the size of the prison population, prisons would be privatised. Chris Grayling reversed plans to cut the population, but not the savings. He replaced privatisation with staffing cuts and contracting out key services. Michael Gove tried to reverse the contracting out and pulled services back in-house. He launched a prison reform bill. This trust shelved it. Uh, it was chaos. I think David Gork and Roy Stewart, until recently the prison minister, tried harder than most. Uh, and our signs the decline in standards and safety may have been slowed, if not re reversed. But it's been very uh, fragile. Permanent Secretary uh, at the Ministry of Justice, Richard Heaton, told MPs in October that compared to the 85,000 places in prison today, by the mid-1920s, quote, the total prison, the total prison capacity we anticipate to be between 95,000 and 105,000. Before the election, uh, Boris Johnson promised to build an extra 10,000 places at a cost of 2.5 billion. So it's not clear whether that's in addition to the 5,000 or 10,000, depending on what day of the week it was, that Liz Truss promised in 2016, or is a restatement of that plan. The reality is the Ministry of Justice say they will have just 3,600 extra places by 2023. They can't conceivably construct enough places to, to meet the expected increases in the prison population if those policies go ahead. And we know what happens then. So hence the announcement just before the dissolution of Parliament that plans to close some of the worst Victorian prisons were going to be scrapped. And I think it's also likely that prison staff retention will suffer further in the light of plans to increase staff numbers in related services such as the police and immigration control. If you're going to recruit 10,000 extra police officers, where are you going to find them? You're going to find a lot of them in other criminal justice agencies, I think. Uh, same for uh, Border Force. Bob Neill, the uh, excellent chair of the Justice Committee, denounced what he said was, and uh, I could quote again, what might be called policy by press notice, without any clear or coherent vision of the future of the prison system. He went on, new prison places might be welcome, but they do nothing to improve the appalling conditions of much of the current prison estate, nor the prospect of offering a safe environment in which to rehabilitate offenders. So, what's to be done? Uh, I, I think most, in my experience, most staff and governors know what a good prison looks like. You know, it should comply with the relevant human rights standards set out in things like the Nelson Mandela rules, 
agreed by the United Nations, including the UK in 2015. In practice, that means prisons that are safe and secure, with that built primarily on dynamic security, kind of relationships, rather than physical and procedural security, which are sort of rules, locks and bars. Decent conditions. No one's asking for luxury, but the difference between life in prison and life outside should be minimised as far as possible. Purposeful work and education to fill the day. Practically every other industrialised country manages that. Practical help to, uh, uh, practical assistance to help prisoners resettle after release. Help to find a job and somewhere to live. Help to maintain and rebuild relationships with the family. Drug and alcohol programmes that continue the work done in prison. Evidence-based programmes to change behaviour. These are the basics. Get that right and then you can do more sophisticated things on these uh, foundations. No one is saying that's easy, but it's not so different from what was being delivered only a few years ago and is delivered in, the, in other European countries. I don't think prisons, uh, uh, I don't think in prisons or elsewhere in the public sector, improvement is going to be achieved by crude benchmarking processes or targets. In prisons, these processes took resilience out of the system and distorted the work, and they unfairly shifted responsibility uh, 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 from the policymakers onto operational managers and staff. It was population staffing and policy pressures that were primarily to blame for the prison crisis, not the competence or commitment of staff and managers. So here's what I think a new government should do, and then I'll finish. Uh, I think it'll require sustained effort over a number of years. A system bedeviled by ministerial churn, each determined to make their mark or stay out of trouble, and the ever-present temptation to make policy by press notice or look for scapegoats won't provide the consistency of purpose required. I think there's a strong case for establishing a publicly accountable board to oversee the system that could provide the sort of uh, strategic consistency and focus required. <coughs> Model might be the Youth Justice Board or the prison commissioners, which uh, we had in, in the past. Of course, ministers would have to be ultimately accountable, but removed from day-to-day -day management. Second, and I think this is for some people more controversial, nothing can be achieved without re-establishing order and control. That's going to take some tough decisions, and as the saying goes, I'd rather we weren't starting from here. We need to change the balance of risk for the organised crime groups who are organising the drugs trade, and there are a number of things that can be done. For example, I'd link a prisoner's security classification much more directly uh, uh, and that's what, which determines the sort of prison they end up in much more directly to their behaviour in prison, not just their offence. And I'd have a more explicit link between behaviour in prison and parole too. I'd do something about staff retention. In particular, I would address issues of pay to make it worthwhile for experienced staff to stay in the job. And I'd invest heavily in staff training too. Fourth, I'd match uh, population to capacity. Prisons are one of the few public services where we can control demand. Right? Uh, uh, we can decide who we send to prison. It's much more difficult to control how many school places or hospital beds we need. For example, we, I think we can reduce the recall population and new technologies such as real-time GPS tracking will, I mean, soon at any rate, give us the capacity to make better use of community sentences. Although I accept those technologies have their risks. And finally, I would ensure the independence of the inspector is enshrined in legislation. The 18th century prison reformer, uh, John Howard, who might be called the first prison inspector, described in his great work, The State of Prisons, what he did when he went to a prison. I've described no prison 
but for my own examination at the several dates set down before the number of prisoners. At each visit, I entered every room, cell and dungeon with a memorandum book in my hand in which I noted particulars on the spot. My description will appear to some readers appear too minute, but I chose to relate circumstances and to characterise them in general terms. By these, the legislator will be better acquainted with the real state of jails and magistrates will be able to judge whether the prisons over which they preside and to which they commit offenders be fit for the purpose they're designed to answer. I might add that a variety of descriptions may possibly suggest something useful in the plans for such prisons as may hereafter be erected, since whatever may appear worth copying may be extracted from any. And I think that's still a useful thing, an important thing to be doing. If there has been some recent improvement in the system, then I think the inspector can claim at least a little bit of credit for that. I certainly think things would be worse without him. So, the degree of civilization in the society can be judged by entering its prisons. The mood and temper of the public in regard to the treatment of crime and criminals is one of the most unfailing tests of the civilization of any country. It's said that no one truly knows a nation until one's been inside its jails. Some lessons for us there, I think, over the next few weeks. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much indeed, Nick. Um, it's, a, in many ways, a very depressing story that you tell, um, but also you end on an agenda for change. Um, we have time for questions and to debate the issues that Nick has raised in his brilliant lecture. Um, I suppose I, I'd, I'll, I'll kick us off, perhaps. Um, in many other areas of policy, public discourse has changed. The political incentives that ministers face have moved away from this kind of tabloid discourse on things like climate change, on poverty alleviation, perhaps, in other areas of public policy. Why is it that in this area of policy, the, the underlying pressures from the public uh, and on politicians mediated through newspapers like The Sun, seem not to have changed, that there hasn't been any kind of countervailing pressure? Well, uh, I think there are two, two, reasons, uh, two reasons for that. I mean, one is I simply think the churn of uh, uh, ministers over this period, I think the job often is just try and stop anything hitting the headlines mm. until you move on. So I think, there's a, so I think that's part of it. I mean, some of that list, you know, we're only in the job for a few months before they move. So there's a bit about just keep the lid on things until we go. And actually, they would talk to you very directly. That was their job. Yeah. The second thing is, I think, for those of us who are interested in prison reform, like I am, uh, I, I think some of that responsibility is on us. So I, I think what we sometimes shy away from is addressing people's legitimate concerns about crime. The reason why the kind of red tops run this sort of story and it resonates is because their readers are in the kind of economic categories who are most likely to be victims of crime. And I think we have to make the case for prison reform uh, it, it, while also uh, at the same time seeing that as part of addressing people's legitimate, people, the concerns that people have got about levels uh, uh, of, of crime, low level and high level. And I think often we're too silent on that and people are interested in prison reform. So it makes it appear that we don't care about it and then the arguments don't have any weight. So I think there needs to be, myself, a bit of a different sort of dialogue and public discourse, and I don't think that's simply about what ministers should do. I think it's also a job for people who are interested in reform to do as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. 
Let's, um, let's open it up to questions then. Who would like to start us off? Yeah, colleague here at the front. Yeah. There's some mics, by the way. We'll come around with a microphone. Uh, hi, Nick. Um, thank you very much for an insightful talk. It's Nazru from University of the West of England. Um, I want to ask you about the phrase of uh, prison crisis. Um, in the HM Inspectorate of Report that was released about five months ago, um, Peter Clark used the sentence or a phrase that um, we do not have a prison service that is entirely in crisis. I do wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Thank oh, well, you. I didn't know it said that. Um, uh, I, well, I, 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 um, I agree with what the Justice Committee said. I think it is now an enduring I think if you look at that, I understand his point of view. The danger is, but certainly my concern was, that if you talked up the idea of there being a crisis, in a sense the rhetoric became the mm. parent of the event and you actually risk causing rather than simply talking about something. But I, but I think it is plain now. I think particularly now, Parliament itself has said it, I, I'm, I'm less bothered about using that term myself. And I think if you look at some of what's happening, you know, if you look at the success, not just about rights, if you are the victims of some of the offences or the uh, uh, your family members commit suicide, it feels like a crisis to you. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's take some more. Let's, go, let's have some more questions. Yeah, down here at the front. I was interested to hear a bit more about why we've got an older prison population and is it, is it because older people are committing more crime, somebody who's already at that stage of life, or is it because we're not letting people out of prison, not uh, allowing parole, and that the, the prisoners who might have been released are still there? Um, you've got two things. I think you've got, first of all, an impact of historic sex abuse cases that certainly uh, pushed up that population. But secondly, as you say, people are getting old in prison. Uh, uh, and as sentences get longer, the, the, the proportion who've got old in prison will grow. I think one of the things to say is that the, the um, Public Health England uh, use a, uh, start to talk about people being older prisoners when they get to 50, because people age more quickly in prison, uh, generally. Uh, but you know, certainly I am, and I, you know, you can go into prisons and you can see people who are really just struggling with the mobility they need to get around the place, let alone anywhere else. And as I say, it's managing those two groups together that's a really difficult thing. Um, I'm just wondering if you'd know if uh, other countries like the US are having a problem with SPICE or if it's exclusive to the UK. Um, I, don't, I don't know that, actually. I mean, it was interesting that... Uh, even in Scotland, and SPICE took a lot longer to hit prisons in Scotland than they did here. So for a while, prisons in Scotland were doing really well, and prison, while prisons here were kind of struggling. You now look at what's happening in Scottish prisons. They've been hit by it too, and that's affected their uh, performance. So I think there are other... Uh, other I, 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 I think, but I would stand corrected by people who might know more about this, that the extent of the problem here is fairly unique. People who know about this are nodding, so that must be right. Nick, can I just ask you on another comparative question? Because there is, um, I think there's evidence that um, often you get a shift in prisons policy when the, when the state hits kind of fiscal buffers, you know, periods of austerity when you're going to make cuts, or where the costs of incarceration become so prohibitive that legislators can't raise the resources for them from local tax taxpayers, etc. They start to shift, and there's some, some evidence of that in the US, I think. Uh, uh, yes, although... Um, it hasn't happened here, though. Austerity well, didn't 
uh, austerity did hit, right? Because what happened yeah. here is Sorry. they cut staffing numbers, but not the population. Yeah, that's right? So that was how they dealt with it here. So they made the savings. They just didn't like, address one. I think the point about what's happening in uh, the uh, states is very interesting, where there is a Republican prison reform movement. Uh, mm -hmm. Trump was speaking, I think, a week or so ago at a uh, American prison reform event. Right? Uh, and there's a Texas prison reform movement that has quite a Republican prison reform, that has quite a radical agenda. And the way it works is on two, three arguments, really. So one is there is a cost argument. This kind of, this is not a good use of taxpayers' <coughs> dollars. There's certainly an evangelical mm. bit to it, that everybody is capable of redemption and all of that kind of stuff. Mm. So it doesn't apply to people that they execute, but, yeah. or, or they don't want sentences, but the rest are sort of <laughs> capable of... They, they would make that distinction explicitly. Some, some things are beyond the pale, but these other people are capable of redemption. And there's also a bit about like the state shouldn't be interfering in, in, in people's lives to this degree. So on some like the drugs laws, actually there'd be a kind of, well, people should be able to do what they kind of want. So you have a very ideological, from the right, prison reform movement in the mm. states. So if you look at what the Texas things, so, you know, that was some of what they put up uh, wouldn't be uh, 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 out of place in a Howard Lee poster and it's signed by kind of Christie from New Jersey and mm. all those kinds of people. It's uh, very interesting, I think. Yeah, very interesting. Good, let's have some more questions. Yeah, I'll, I'll lady up here, yeah. Thank you. I'm not a student. I'm a former HNPS employee and now currently a member of an independent monitoring board. And I'm just conscious we've had a plethora of um, fly-on-the-wall type documentaries uh, in the last year to 18 months showing the public the reality of life in prison. And I wondered what your take on those was. Is it helpful for the public to realise it's not like Hotel Hilton? Or is there a danger that uh, in showing the reality of life in prison as it is, it will actually deter more people from thinking of applying to become prison officers and therefore simply prolong the staffing crisis? Um, uh, I, I, on the whole, I think, I think you could overdo it, but I think it's a good thing to open it up in some way. I mean, I'm not, I, I, I mean, other people here might know better than me. I would be surprised if that, that alone had much impact on staff recruitment. The, the problem seems to be, as I understand it, is not actually recruitment. It's keeping people after you've recruited them. It's kind of turnover, you know? and, and, and that depends a bit on where your prison is. So I think in some parts of, say, you know, it's up to the people in the hole. If you're in the hole, the prison is quite a good local employer. It's relatively well run. You know, mm. it managed to keep people from head office out of it to a degree. It's, it's, it's fine. If you're, say, a London prison, you, you're, you're badly paid comparatively. You're likely to get your, you're likely to get your potted or, or hit. Uh, and actually, the border force down the road in Heathrow uh, are paying better for a less stressful job. You know, what's not a, not a very hard choice. So I think it's retention, right? I say, actually, I think now you have to address, you have to make it financially worthwhile for people to stay. And I think that will mean, I'm not here to advocate for the period, I think, I think we need to, to make the salaries competitive. You're going to have to deal with that. I think. Okay, let's, um, let's take you yeah. over here, colleague over here, yeah. Just reflecting back on your time um, in HMIP, do you think the urgent notification process introduction has been a positive or negative for the service? Could you uh, just explain what that is for some of the audience that would just... Um, when the, well, 
I'm, might be stealing off. When HMIP come in, um, they give um, certain markings. I don't know if you've seen this in the press. Um, there's also been the introduction of an urgent notification process, which um, there is then 28 days for the prison concerned to um, develop an action plan. Resources do come with, with that as well. So um, I think HMPPS colleagues have some views on it. I'd be interested in yours. Well, uh, I think um, uh, I, I, do see, I, do, I can see some difficulties with it. I'm not going to criticise my success. I, I, mean, I, I went up to Liverpool, uh, HP Liverpool, which had been subject to this urgent notification process. Everyone there was really positive because actually the problems at Liverpool had been largely outside their direct control and the urgent notification process had got money in from the centre and had reduced the size of the population. Although you could argue those prisoners were then pushed somewhere else and put them somewhere else. But they were, you know, they, they prison staff there were very positive about it. I think the real danger is, um, and, and then there's a problem about, you know, selling my view when I was there, I didn't feel the problems on the whole were at local level. I said I thought they were around national policy and strategy, and that's what needed to be addressed. Um, uh, the, the, the issue, I think, is where I think they have to be careful is I think it's really important that the, the inspectorate does not become part of prison management. So I was really clear. We're not, you know, sometimes people say, well, you ought to be able to enforce your recommendations. If you do that, why do you need a head of the prison service then if we're making the decisions? And then once we are, if we are making the decisions about what should happen, then who's going to hold us to account for that? So I, I, I think it would be a very dangerous thing for the inspectorate to get to become to become or to be perceived as part of the management of the system. And I try quite hard to avoid that. You know, you turn up at a prison and prison staff is number say, you've been sent by the Ministry of Justice. And I was always, you know, wanted to really try and uh, uh, ax that. So I, I would say that's what they have to be careful about, that they're not and they're not perceived as part of the management of the system. Um, and I'd say, I'm not, I'm not, my experience was actually uh, prison staff uh, were reasonably, you know, first I could tell, had a better relationship than, say, Ofsted has with teaching staff. You know, on the whole, I think most people prison know they need someone outside to come in and look at it. And that actually, if you do it in a sensible way, I think that can be constructive, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Although I'm not saying anybody thought it was fun when we turned up. <laughs> yeah, colleague at the front, yeah. Uh, Nick, given your kind of, you know, passion for prison reform and noting, you know, uh, how it prevails over time, I'm reading a book at the moment uh, that was published in 1948 that's called Prison Reform. Um, would you like to see um, senior leaders within prisons uh, be more encouraged to voice their opinion on prison reform and also policy direction as well? Yes, I mean, I, I think, um, look, I think in the end, uh, I think uh, uh, the state should run prison, I mean, I, I'm, or, or be responsible for them. I'm not getting, I don't mean the privatisation point, but, but actually, it's a, but saying, <laughs> in public sector prisons, people are civil servants, essentially. So I think there is a limit to the degree to which civil servants can publicly criticise government policies. I think there are some limits to that. But I think that it would be, 
I think it would be healthier if ministers were uh, more willing to listen to other voices, listen to the voices of the people on the ground. And I think one of the, you know, I think a real test sometimes of people in senior positions, public leadership stuff, is the extent to which they're prepared to listen to bad news. I, I, I thought there was a real, um, I almost put this in the talk, but I took it out. One of the things that made most uh, influence on me was the inquiry into the, uh, what happened at Mid-Staffordshire Hospital by Robert Francis, when you remember this big scandal with elderly people being treated there. And one of the things Francis describes very vividly in his report was the extent to which the management of the hospital was simply not hearing and not willing to hear the bad news that actually was coming at them from what staff were saying, whistleblowers, complainants, or whatever. Mm. And so like, they might get data that was telling them bad news, and rather than say, look, there's probably something going on here, we're going to have to address it, they say, look, let's try and find out why the data might be wrong. That was their response, rather than mm. actually dealing with it. And I, and I think that's a pretty widespread public sector issue. So are you willing to engage with the bad news, deal with that, and, and, and encourage people to come to you and say, you know, maybe not in the public way, but say, look, we've got a problem here. You know, and, I, and I think just uh, you can look at some of that stuff and you can say it needs to happen. It's certainly true, though, isn't it, that in, in something like policing, you know, we regularly hear the professional expertise of chief constables or the yes, commissioner. Yes, yes. You do so in schooling. Uh, yeah. You do so in, in the NHS, the medical profession. Yeah. I, I, do th I do think that the... Uh, no, I, I think that's true. I mean, I think there is a contrast. I think, for instance, you know, you look at... Uh, uh, so in policing, one of the most powerful bodies in policing is the Superintendents Association. Yeah? Mm. It's a real contrast there with the Prison Governors Association, which, you know, but it simply doesn't have the clout. And I think there are, there are issues about how you have that professional voice and give that, I know, a structure to give that more clout, which I don't think is strong enough kind of at the moment. Okay, let's have some more questions. Is there somebody? Sorry, if I missed somebody. Yeah, at the back there. Yeah, sorry. Um, hi, I've just finished my placement year at HMIP. Um, and I just wondered if you had any specific opinions on reform needed within the women's estate. Because obviously, as on the whole, they seem to perform better than men or youth justice um, well, institutions. Uh, the, there are, um, I mean, there are big differences between the women's estate and the men's estate. And I touched on some of them. On the whole, women tend to be there for different sorts of offences to men. So they're much more likely to be there for acquisitive crime rather than uh, a violent crime. So the, there's much less of a risk. And, and it's you know, designed for the 95% of men rather than the 5% of women. And, and I think, you know, my, my view about what should happen is I think people should properly implement what Baroness Corson had to say, which I still think is a good uh, 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 blueprint. They did do some of that, but the things I think that still need to be done is, is a much more distinct and visible leadership for the women's prison service. And secondly, much more investment in kind of community alternatives where the sorts of offences the women commit and the sorts of lifestyle could be better managed. I think what's also very true of women prisoners is they are, I think, much more likely to be uh, victims themselves than men, although there is some research evidence that maybe just the men are less forthcoming about talking about some of that, so I'd be a bit of cautious about that. But, you know, if you go into a women's prison, it feels very different from a men's prison and needs to be managed differently, I think. Okay, yeah. And, and just but it is, I think it is really frustrating that there was very significant improvement in women's prisons and then that got lost with some of the staff cuts. Yeah. Hi there. Um, I was just wondering, 
What was the biggest lesson that you took from your time um, as Chief Inspector? Uh, what was the, what was the biggest big lesson? Uh, that's a hard uh, question. Tell, uh, can I, I'm, I know it's a hard question, but can we tell us a little bit about what it is like? You, you, in your lecture, you mentioned, you know, the Secretary of State rings you up, he's bawling you out, you know, you've got the phone over here. Can you say a little bit about the relationship? I'm sorry, I'm hijacking your question a bit, but, and I'll, I'm sure Nick will answer it, but the relationship between the Chief Inspector and the, and the Ministers. Say a little bit more about that relationship. Uh, it depends on the minister. So, so the answer to your question is, I would say, the biggest thing I've uh, learned is that, is that it's almost never a useful question to ask who is to blame. Right? Uh, that would be a big lesson for me. It's always these things, multifactorial, systemic, whatever. And I think this idea, you know, when I, other individual things happen, you're some happy at the moment or whatever, you know, we like a head on a pole, you know, and I think I'm very, uh, I, I, I was, I sort of slightly changed my mind about that in the job. But to answer your point, I mean, it would depend on them. So, um, well, if you, like, I, I, had, um, I had a good relationship with Ken Clark, I think. So I had this rather bizarre experience because I got appointed by Jack Straw and I was told I was appointed, so I gave up my other job. And then I was told that uh, uh, Ken Clark wanted to see me, so I went in for a chat. And then I discovered that this chap was, in fact, an interview. Luckily, I'd got the job <laughs> that I already thought I had because um, <laughs> I'd given up my other one. Uh, but then we, uh, I had a poor relationship with Chris Grayling. I think there'd be no, uh, uh, I was the only person in that. Uh, and he was, you know, did, uh, I, I remember one occasion where I, uh, you know, I would send him a, 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 I'd meet fairly regularly, and I'd send him a note of the things I wanted to talk to him about, you know, stuff that come out from inspections. Uh, and I, say, I always say, you know, the stuff you want to talk to me about, then let me know, because then I can prepare. So I went in one day prepared to talk to him, and this wasn't unusual. And he said, I want to talk to you about Wood, your report of Woodhill Prison, which is a training prison. Uh, and I said, well, that wasn't one of the places I went to, personally, actually. My deputy went there, but you know, what, what, what's the issue? And he said, well, you said that education and activity was very poor, uh, and uh, I went down to some of the workshops, and it looked very good to me. Uh, so I said, well, you know, I, I wasn't there, but I suspect the issue is Woodhill's the trust for not very much activity. So what might, might have been happening was okay, but most people weren't doing it. And he said to me, well, I went up onto the wings. I didn't see uh, anybody hanging about. <laughs> and I said, no, that's because they were locked in their cells. Right? <laughs> and he goes, no, they weren't. Luckily, Michael Spur happened to be that one. So we sort of both turned to Michael and Michael Spur. Well, yes, actually, they were. That is what happens at Woodhill, and that is the problem at Woodhill. People aren't getting out of their cells to go to work. So he harumphed a bit. <laughs> and then what happened on the... Um, this is like a secret between us, so you, nobody must repeat this. Right? <laughs> uh, but I need to get this off my chest. And then, the, uh, <laughs> uh, then there was an occasion when... Uh, the time when he rang me up at home, what had happened was I'd done a... Uh, today program interview about a report we'd done and uh, I can't remember it was that asked me you know, what I thought was going on and I said I thought it was you know it's not down to the individual prison it's a symptom of wider policy and population and uh, 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 um, uh, staffing pressures so then he rang me up at home and he said um, and it was literally I was having you know watching telly dinner on my knee right and then there's kind of and he was bellowing at me right and he said, I had to come in. He said, you've got to come in tomorrow and tell me on one sheet of paper how you can justify these remarks. 
So I, so I said, fine, it's a bit like dealing with naughty teenagers. So if we can't really calm down, we'll come in and talk to you tomorrow. And then I, in, about, like, in about 15 minutes, and then started having journalists ring me up. Right? And they said, we hear you've been called in to see Chris Grayling for bollocking tomorrow. Right? <laughs> what are you going to tell him? So I said, well, I'm going to tell him this. Dun, 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 dun. So the stuff I've told you. Which they then duly printed. Right? So I then go to see Chris Grayling the next morning, and he's even more apoplectic. Right? <laughs> and he says, you've been briefing against me. <laughs> I said, wait a minute, he was there with his spad, his special advisor. I said, no, that's because she rang up all the papers and told, her that you, told them you'd call me in for bullying. So of course they rang me up. What did you think was going to happen? And he sort of harumphed a bit. And then he said, no, look, we got off. Then later he said to me, look, we got off to a bad start. We're going to try and be a bit more. You know. But, but let, let me give you some advice about what you should put in your annual report. <laughs> you think, no, no, it doesn't work like that. Uh, uh, so th that was poor, and then, but then, like, I, I, I started, then I had a, um, a better relationship, I mean, subsequently I had quite good relationships with uh, uh, Chris Grayling and um, uh, with Michael Gove, actually, and this was, but I, I tried to, um, you know, I tried to organise, and I'm dealing with Grayling was quite difficult, so I tried to organise it and keep it professional, and make sure I could evidence what I was saying and be quite careful, about that, but um, it, it mm. was quite, uh, you know, it was quite difficult. So I wasn't, mm. I realised after a while that it wasn't going to be chief inspector of prisons, probably not a long-term career option <laughs> for but me. You, but you, you are Her Majesty's chief inspector. Yes. So you, you aren't actually a civil servant reporting no, no, no. So to I, the... I, absolutely, I didn't feel I was reporting to, so yeah. I absolutely did feel... Yeah. That, that's all very interesting, but I don't have to do what you... I'm not going to do what you say. So I absolutely thought there's a very important thing about fighting for our independence, which we did have to yeah. do. So I asserted that. And occasionally, then the other thing he did, <laughs> while I'm on it, right, is he, then when I left, right, we discovered he had packed the interview panel for my replacement with Conservative Party donors. They weren't declared as Conservative Party donors. We just... Because we researched it. We found pictures of them going to it. So... And then we told the Justice Committee, who then made him rerun the uh, appointment process, and we got somebody better. But it was like um, uh, a bit of transport, which I think is very unusual, because I did have this status that basically said, look, I've got, I'm appointed up until this point, and you can do what you like, but I can go where I want, and that's what I'm going to do, uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. report on it. Okay. And it was important, I think. What was important, and I think actually the results of that, I think that did have a bearing on then uh, Michael Grove and Liz Trust getting money for new staff from the Treasury. So I think although it didn't hmm. have short-term impact, I think in the longer term that did help that kind of process. Yes, the Treasury realised that they reached a kind of crisis point yeah, where well, they had to. Well, the danger was something was going to blow. I think there was a point yeah. where there was a real risk that something was going to blow. The other danger is that somebody, you know, particularly staff, were going to get really, really badly hurt, and that would be very yeah. chaotic. And the POA were you know, on the brink of saying that we're just not having this. Yeah. Fair enough, I thought. Yeah, yeah. Joe, Joe. So it's, it's slightly hijacking that and building on it. So earlier you tried to make a distinction um, between <clears throat> your role and the management of prisons. And it reminded me, as, as chair of governors and schools, Ofsted people telling me something similar. But then I'm kind of thinking now, you're not responsible, you're not part of the management of prisons, but you might be crucially involved in the management of imprisonment as a social institution. Yes. And is some of the crisis that you were talking about then the crisis of prisons as opposed to the crisis of imprisonment? 
and is that a distinction that's even worth kind of playing around with? Well, I certainly think I had a, a wider role about the system. I mean, I would just, you know, you, I make a distinction between, if you like, the management of the system and part of the leadership of, in prison, of what was going on. So I'd make that uh, distinction. But I um, uh, tried to... So one of the things that people were keen for us to do was publish league tables of prisons. Prison service did that a bit, but I wouldn't do that. I said, we're not going to do that. And they wanted us to give individual prisons a particular you know, one-off score, right? and we wouldn't do that. Uh, I didn't think that was the appropriate thing to do. So I tried not to get dragged into that job. Because actually, you had some prisons where, actually, objectively, you know, the outcomes of the people being held there were pretty poor, but the staff were doing an amazing job to get it from completely appalling to pretty poor. You know, that was a really hard thing to do. There were other prisons where, you know, much more docile population, you know, smaller and whatever, and they were kind of coasting. So I, I thought that business of trying to make comparisons between places was a kind of mistake, and I didn't want to be part of that process. So I, I didn't feel I wanted to make explicit judgments about the leadership of the prison either. Well, particularly in the case that when I was doing it, Hmm. The, the, the leadership issues were in the Ministry of Justice, I thought, rather than um, individual prisons. But I, but I think there's a, obviously there's an ambiguity in all of these things. So, I mean, it's not, you know, there's sort of shades of grey, but my, my personal instinct was to stay away from the management as much as I could. Did you ever have any kind of collegiate relationship to other inspectors? Is there a kind of process where chief inspectors would... Get together and moan. Get together <laughs> <Yeah>. and moan. <laughs> no, but seriously, in terms of sort of sharing your experience yeah, well, we got on, well we work quite closely so we work quite closely with Ofsted so Ofsted would on an inspection would inspect um, education yeah, training yeah. and Ofsted were primarily responsible for so they would come into our mm. inspections yeah. we would go into their inspections of juvenile uh, uh, for, the, for the very younger boys uh, and we work with um, we didn't just do prisons we work with uh, the police inspectorate to do police custody as well so we had a kind of relationship and I wouldn't um, uh, you know, we, we kind of got on, but I wouldn't say we had a common agenda. Well, there'd been a move. In fact, actually, what, what had happened is that prior to my starting, the last Labour government, this was probably you, had tried to create a sort of super inspectorate, criminal justice inspectorate, of, of the police inspectorate, the prisons inspectorate, and the prosecution inspectorate, which had then been kind of dropped. Mm. And as a result of that, actually, everybody, what, the consequence of that actually made everybody quite wary of working together right. too closely mm. because they didn't want to re reignite that kind of thing. Actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but we, you know, we got on okay, and we did sometimes get together to moan. <laughs> Anybody else? Yeah, Tony. Yeah, here we are. Hi, um, I've had a lot of talk in the United States about a school-to-prison pipeline, and I was just wondering if that was something you thought existed in the UK or not. I think there is a not school to prison pipeline. I think the real, I think there's a big issue with Tasmanian boys. We're talking about boys who get excluded, who then go to social exclusion units or don't go to social exclusion units, and end up certainly uh, in juvenile establishments. So I think there is a there is a pipeline, um, and again, I'd be careful not to overblow it, but where. The, the, the school system has been unable to deal with some of the most challenging boys who then leave the school, sometimes I think understandably, sometimes less mm. understandably, 
and those boys are the ones who are most likely to end up in gangs and most likely to end up inside, I think. So I would certainly think, you know, I think one of the areas for investment is around uh, uh, sort of exclusion units and what happens with those mm. boys who aren't in mainstream school. You know, but even so, I mean, one of the dramatic things that, there's another old lecture on this, if you look at what's happening in the youth estate, it's something very interesting. So the numbers of boys in custody, under 18-year-olds, has dropped by, I think, two-thirds in the last uh, decade or so. Phenomenal yeah. drop, right? Mm. And actually, that mirrors a drop in uh, sort of first-time offending, right? So the, the, that age group is committing less offences. But at the same time, the boys who do end up in custody are from a cohort who are more likely to re-offend than in the past and probably commit more serious offences. So you now have this much more difficult mix of boys, I think, in, in challenging in lots of ways, of boys in custody. And I think there's sort of data about the sudden big surge, if that's what it is, in self-harm there. That would suggest something really bad is going wrong uh, to me. Hi, yeah. I was wondering um, how important you think the sense of hope is for indeterminate sentence prisoners and how it impacts um, on their proclivity for self-harm, drugs, um, if they lose that, that sense of yeah, hope. I haven't... I, I did think about talking about indeterminate prisoners, but decided that would just take 50 minutes to explain, so I didn't. So indeterminate are, are people who, from I think it was 2008, could be, um, for a relatively minor offence, could be given a, a, a sentence. And what, the, what effect the sentence would be is you've got to serve, say, six months in prison, so you can't be let out before you've done six months, but after that, you can only be let out if the prison, uh, if the pro board says you aren't a risk. So the problem for the prison in that situation is how in prison do they demonstrate they're not going to be a risk when they leave. And so you have now have some uh, men with very, I think particularly with kind of chaotic behaviour, who've been stuck in prison long after their tariff goes. And then I think you do see a loss of hope, and then I do think that leads to uh, self-harm. And I think this thing about hope is very important. And I think, uh, uh, um, you know, particularly I think when people are doing long sentences and people lose that kind of hope. And I often... You know, sometimes it's about what people can do with the time they're spending in prison, how that works. You know, hope may just be about something nice is going to happen tomorrow. I remember one of the saddest things I saw once, which really stuck with me, I think it was in uh, Pentonville. It was, it was linked to them. And one of the guys there had done a, uh, he'd got a wall, you know, one of these calendar wall chart things that he'd stuck on, a, on his wall. Right? And there was a kind of little space on the chart for every day. And there are only three things on the whole year, trial, trial, and birth birthday. Right? And that, and that recently, you've gone to all this trouble to put up a sort of calendar, and there was nothing in it. Right? There wasn't anything to look forward to, no positive stuff happening. And I think that business about, uh, you know, there is something happening. Right? It may not be about just like a prison. It's someone's going to come and visit on Saturday. Someone's going to... We're going to do something a bit different in the prison. I, I think that sense of something to look forward to is really of hope. In big hope and little hope is important. Good evening. My name's Vicky. Um, listening to your talk this evening, it's been um, fascinating. Thank you. Um, it's clear there seems to be a crisis that's been going on for a long time. 
But while we're, it's a bit like what's happening with the NHS, when we're dealing with the NHS crisis situations and poor health, we have very little time for prevention and focusing on positive health and well-being. How do you see there being a potential shift in attitude so that we can put more emphasis into uh, preventing people offending in the first place and those that are inside having a more positive experience? I think um, it's very, you know, prisons are always, I think, going to be at the back of the queue. That is a reality. You know, behind hospital schools, the question is how far at the back, and I think that's. Uh, uh, and as I say, one of the things about prisons is you can control demand for prisons in a way you can't control demand for schools. I, I, my view is that I'm, I get slightly bothered when people talk about this a public health approach to crime, you know, right, yeah. uh, which is about prevention. I mean, obviously that's important, and I don't say it's not important, but you wouldn't, in the real health system, say, look, we're going to have a you know, we're going to pull our money into public health, but we're not going to have hospitals and an ambulance service. Right? So I think you need to, certainly if you look at what's happening with gangs, of course we want a public health approach to stop people getting involved, but there'll be boys that are being killed this week. I, a, I would say it would be more likely than not that a boy under 18 is going to get stabbed and killed this week. So what are we doing about that? You know, it's, it's all, you know the public health approaches will take years to have effect. I think we also need maybe some quite difficult, but I think very targeted stuff to address what's happening, uh, to address what's happening now. And th then the difficulty of that often, to talk about custody for that group, the places you're putting them into could not be more unsuitable. Yeah. But I think one of the issues about the public health approach is it's become, it's made legitimate a focus on prevention for politicians who otherwise find it hard to have a language yes, yes. for prevention rather than punishment or punitive action. So people like Sadiq Khan, yeah. in circumstances of intense political pressure in London, yes. with lots of kids getting killed, yes. are able to say, I have got an approach here, it's a public health approach, we're trying to reduce youth crime. And the health discourse has given a legitimacy yeah. to that. But I wonder, what, is that more I, I, applicable yeah. perhaps to this well, question? I, 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 just, just, I don't know, I, I agree that, that is a, you know, that's an unequivocally good thing, right? Mm. But, but don't think that w that's not enough on its own. And I think that kind of health discourse would be something that you could use for us. I mean, most, um, you know, although we talked about the older prisoners getting older, it's still the case that most people in prison are young men. You know? mm. And actually, we know that people don't mature till they get to be about 25 or, or, or like fully. So actually, there is stuff about what we do with them and mm. how we can steer some of them away. Uh, I, I think there, are, there is scope for doing stuff. I mean, I think a lot of the improvements in the prison system won't happen in the prison system. They'll happen outside with what we do with people before they get there. The best, you know, the best thing to do is for somebody not to have them in prison, not to give them a good prison experience. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good, okay. Are there any, any final questions? Anybody got a, a burning question they haven't been able to ask yet? Yeah, one down here. Great. Hi there. Um, I'm a probation officer um, for South West, and my motivation for attending this evening was perhaps to hear about your thoughts on OMIC, um, which is the offender management in custody transition which is occurring at the moment. Um, and I would have thought that that perhaps would have been on the agenda in terms of the anticipated changes and benefits that that might bring for prisoners, but also um, perhaps some of the concerns which us as probation officers feel. So I just wondered whether that's being discussed Amongst your team. Well, there is a, yeah, I mean, that's a fair, I mean, if you, I mean, in a sense, I was looking backwards rather than forwards to some extent, only kind of quite big. I think there is a real 
Um, I know there are concerns about probation staff. You hear them a lot. I think you know you can. I think, uh, I think what's happening in the probation service seems to me an act of wanton destruction, really. That's for screening again, uh, uh, which is very problematic. I think the issue. Right, what seems to me is important about that uh, thing, as well as uh, uh, the broader themes, that changes and reforms that are made are evidence-based, right? and that actually the, there is a way for the views of people working on, on the ground in prisons in the probation service, that actually people are interested in what you've got to say, because they regard you as the experts, and that voice informs what happens. And I think... Mm. In, in a sense, uh, my fear about the omit system is it, it, it's a slightly, you know, it's over, but you feel it's like someone's gone in a dark room with a towel over their head and come up with this brilliant system, and actually it hasn't been properly road tested against the sort of reality of what people are. And if you look at, you know, the thing I was trying to say about lots of the changes that happened in the prison system, well, they were great on paper, they would have worked, right? Assuming that everybody worked perfectly, no one was ever absent and nothing untoward happened, they would have worked perfectly. But that's, life isn't like that. Right? And, and I think the danger of the OMIC system, which I wouldn't claim to be an expert in, was, so what people said to me, is it, it feels, uh, uh, whether the evidence base and whether it's got the robustness to actually do the job people claim for it. Okay. Okay. Okay, well, I think if, um, if that's all of your questions, Nick, thank you very much for taking so many questions, answering them all so thoroughly uh, and honestly, and um, for confirming our views of Chris Grayling. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you would. Uh, it's, it's great for you to have come here and given us that talk tonight. Thank you so much, and thank you all for coming. And can I ask you to thank Nick in the usual way? Thank you.